pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for gathering us together today for your will and for your great purposes. We thank you for bringing people into this place who know you and for bringing people into this place who are far from you. We thank you that part of what you have ordained today is the preaching of your word your revealed Word to us. That's great for those who do not know You today, God, because they may today know You through Your Word. So we pray that Your Holy Spirit would um, come along with this preaching, go before this preaching, and inspire this preaching so that this is much more than the words of men, but it is uh, the very words of God from Your Holy Scripture. This is also good for those of us who know You, for those of us who have been walking with You and in the light, because we need to be further convicted by Your Word. We need to be further instructed by Your Word. We need to be humbled. And God, there is so much that each of us does not know. So our prayer would be that You would help us, as Paul hoped for us, that You would help us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Your Son, Jesus Christ. That there would be some today who would come to know You for the first time, and there are others who would come to know You more deeply today. So all of this, God, is totally impossible without You. So we ask that You would come now. Come in the power and the might of Your Holy Spirit. May there be good preaching and good hearing for Your glory and for the good of Your people. We pray this in the great name of Your Son. His name is Jesus. Amen. So uh, 1 John, week 3 here. uh, Perhaps the most uh, affectionate letter in the entire New Testament. Written by John, who was uh, best friends to Jesus. He was part of the inner three. Jesus had 12 disciples, but then he had three particularly close friends, Peter, James, and John. And of those three, that elite group, John was the beloved disciple, or the disciple whom Jesus loved. So he was right next to Jesus throughout his entire ministry. He sat down and listened to his teaching. Uh, He watched him perform miracles. He stood boldly at the foot of the cross as Jesus was crucified. Um, He willingly and lovingly received the mother of Jesus, Mary, to care for her. Um, He was the first one to see the empty tomb. Um, He witnessed the resurrected Jesus and he watched him ascend into heaven. So John knows what he's talking about. He's writing to uh, who he calls his little children. That's all we know about him is that they're um, some people that John dearly loves. He calls them his beloved and he calls them his little children. They're like his spiritual kids because they were born again most likely under his ministry. Um, So he has a deep love and affection for them, and it comes out in his writing. And he's writing to them because they're in trouble, which is why a lot of your New Testament was written. Most of the New Testament was written within 50 years of the death of Jesus, and in that time span, a lot of false teaching crept into the church, a lot of distorted Gospels 
crept into the church. And so it was necessary for those who walked with Jesus and those who knew Jesus and those who listened to Jesus, it became necessary for them to write letters to the church to instruct them and to get them back on track. So John knows from correspondence that his little children have been, um, they have succumbed to false teaching. Uh, There are teachers who have come in and claim to be from God. They're not. And, And because of that, it's compromising the truth And consequently, it's compromising their joy. It's compromising their fellowship with one another. It's it's compromising their their purity of life, their holiness. Uh, And it's compromising their assurance, their security that they have in Christ because they no longer are holding on to the one true gospel. So John, because he loves them, does what any loving pastor would do. Uh, He communicates to them. He writes them a letter. A letter that sounds like they're sitting around a fire and John has been asked to share his heart with them. And so he spends a few hours pouring out his heart uh, for these people he loves, writing to his his little children. So we've covered the first four verses in a couple weeks um, in which John has established what his whole goal and purpose is going to be in this letter. Namely, He is going to promote Jesus. He's going to talk about and preach about and write about that which he has seen and heard. That's what he's going to be proclaiming. And he's going to be proclaiming Jesus in hopes that that's going to promote fellowship and joy in the people he's writing to. So as we're reading today, our hope is that Jesus would be proclaimed And because Jesus is being proclaimed, that is going to be better for our fellowship with God, our fellowship with one another, and consequently our joy. So 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 is where we're going to pick it up today. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you. Very first thing that John says once he's done with his introductory words is this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you. That's a hefty statement right off the bat because Jesus said a lot. He said a lot. There was a a lot of messages and truth uh, that Jesus delivered in his three years of ministry. We can read about him in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But John tells us now that what he's about to say in the second half of verse 5, this is the message of Jesus. In other words, what I'm about to say, listen, it is not just a message from Jesus. This is the message from Jesus. This is the truth. In other words, he's saying that that in a sense, everything that Jesus says and, and everything that Jesus taught and, and all of His truth, you could, in essence, fit it inside this truth. That's how important and foundational what He's about to say is. So, the message is this. God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. He says the same thing. And He says it positively 
and negatively. God is light. It's positive. Let me say it another way. Let me say it negatively. In him, there is no darkness at all. For those of you who have been Christians for a while or or, are familiar with the Bible, you know that light and darkness are a theme that shows up over and over and over again in your Bible. And and they are a, a metaphor for many different things, but primarily light serves as a metaphor in two ways. The first one is that light is equivalent to, representative of truth in the Bible. So when it's talking about light, it's talking about truth. And the opposite, darkness, would be heresy or error. But light is truth. You see this in Psalm 119, 105, where it says that your word is a lamp unto my feet. It's a light to my path. Well, how is God's word a light to your path? It's truth. It's truth so that you can know what reality is so that you can navigate your life. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. It's a light to my path. God says of Isaiah in chapter 49, verse 6, he's called Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophet, a prophet who is proclaiming truth. And he calls Isaiah a light for the nations. He's a light for the nations because light is representative of truth. He says, I'm giving you, Isaiah, to these nations. You are to be a light that my salvation may be known to the ends of the earth. In Luke chapter 2, verses 30 through 32, you can read about Mary and Joseph presenting Jesus at the temple, as was customary. Um, He's going to be dedicated before the Lord. And you remember there's a man there. It says the Holy Spirit was with him. His name was Simeon. He recognized that Jesus was the Christ. He was the Messiah. He was the rescuer who was to come. And he calls him a light for revelation. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and to all peoples of the earth. So Jesus was going to be a light. A light for what? Revelation. To reveal what? To reveal the truth of God. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, the same God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts the light of the glory, of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. What is light? It's truth. It's knowledge. In your Bible, where there is light, there is knowledge of the truth. And where there is darkness, there is error. The second thing that light predominantly represents in the New Testament is purity or holiness. Therefore, where there is darkness, there is evil. There is sin. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and call good evil, and put darkness in place of light, and light in place of darkness. So it makes this distinction between light and darkness. And the distinction between light and darkness is good and evil. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 through 14, we, as God's people, are called to walk as children of the light. And then in verse 10, he says what he means, what what does it mean to walk as children of the light? It means, verse 10, to find out what pleases the Lord. So light means purity. It means holiness. 
In Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 14, it commends us as Christians to cast off darkness. It doesn't mean to never turn off the lights or don't have nightlights in your room. He's talking morally. Cast off darkness, because then what does he say? And put on the armor of light. So we translate that to God is light. In other words, God is truth. God is truth. There is absolutely no error in God. God is a truth teller. He is incapable of telling a lie. He doesn't lie. He doesn't psych. He doesn't juke you. He's a truth teller. Numbers 23:19 says God is not a man that he should lie. In other words, men do what? We lie. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of a man that he should change his mind. He doesn't even change his mind, which can sometimes be kind of like lying. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Those are rhetorical questions in Numbers chapter 23, and the answer is no. He doesn't speak and then not act. He doesn't promise and not fulfill. He's God. God is light. God is truth, John is saying. But also, God is holy. God is pure. God is light and in Him there is no darkness. That means that there is no sin in God. That God is not behind any sin. That God is not a, a promoter of sin. Psalm chapter 5, verse 4. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness, Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Or Deuteronomy 32.4 The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is God is truth and God is pure. Now John says that at the very beginning of this letter. He's saying this is the foundational doctrine. It's at least the foundation for the next ten verses that we're going to study. And you could make a case that this statement is the foundation for everything else that's going to follow in the book of 1 John. So everything that we read is going to be inferred from God is light. In Him there is no darkness. God is the truth. He's the true one. God is pure. He is the Holy One. This is, when it comes to truth, the most significant truth that you need to understand and know. That's how serious John is taking this. There is truth that's kind of insignificant, right? Even in your Bible, there are truths that are significant and more significant. Like Jesus will say, truly, truly, I say to you when something is really important. Or John declares in, to the Corinthians that I now declare to you the thing of, that which is most important. Okay, so there are degrees of what is important and significant. And there may be things that you hear every day that, that may be true, but they're not, they're not necessarily important for you. Some of us get caught up in that. 
When you're going to the grocery store and you're checking out, right, you can read just on the cover of magazines a lot of facts, maybe, but a lot of truth that is very insignificant. It is not significant that Britney Spears gained 10 pounds over the summer. It is not significant that Justin Bieber got a matching tattoo with his dad. Which is true story. It's Jesus in the Hebrew. Some Christians love that. They're like, I knew it. I knew he was a Christian. It's okay to have the poster. That may be truth. That may be truth. But it's not significant, right? It shouldn't be something that we get real excited about and dwell on. What John is saying here is significant truth. And we know that for a couple reasons. One, he says it at the very beginning. So just in, in, in writing, okay, he gets it out in front in the spotlight for everything else now structurally to come underneath it. So it's the first thing he says, but not only that. The way he says it is profound. He says God is light. Some people think that light is a metaphor for God. That's not what it's saying. It's not saying God is like light. It's saying God is light. That's very different. It's not like John is writing and saying, okay, how do I get you to understand God? I know. Think of light. And it's a metaphor for God. That's not what he says. He doesn't even say that, that God is a light. He doesn't say that God is the light. Both implying something created. A light, the light. He says that God is... is is light. The Bible says God is love. Not God is loving, but God is love. The Bible says God is spirit, not that God is a spirit, though it does say that, but God is spirit. The Bible does not say that God is like light. The Bible said that God is light. He is light. He is immaterial. He is, he is diffused everywhere. He spreads into every corner of everything. He is light. God is essential and necessary for life. So we're meant to see that light is like God. Not God is like light. So it's very significant the way that Paul says this. He's saying that the God is the switch that is flipped on in a dark room. Okay, and without God, without God, we are all stumbling around in the darkness. That's why as Christians, we know where to go because we're called children of light. That's why Jesus, one of his nicknames for the Pharisees who do not know God, is they are blind guides. They are in the dark. Why are they in the dark? Because they do not know God. So God is light and in Him is no darkness. And, and this truth is not just something that we hear and say, well, that's nice, that's interesting, that's fascinating. No, John goes on now and gives instruction based on that. So this is not just a truth that you believe, this is a truth that you do. 
When we understand that God is light, it doesn't just mean that that God opens our eyes and so now we have a, a clear vision of everything. It means that He's opened our eyes, we have a clear vision of everything, therefore we have clear direction of where we are to go with our life, which is why He's going to say in the following verses, walk in the light. All flowing from what He said. So we've got five verses now, six through ten. All of it based on the foundational truth that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. And if you read these five verses, they're really neat and tidy. There's these five if-then statements. Verse 6 is one, verse 7 is one, 8, 9, and 10. Five if-then statements. And each one of them says, if this then this and this. If you say this, if you do this, and then it gives two consequences of that. If you're going to go this way, here are two things that you can bank on. And he does that five different times. And even more specifically, if we look through them, he's going to give three warnings. In other words, don't do this. And two encouragements or gracious affirmations and assurances, and he's saying, do these. Don't do three of these, but do two of them. We can see real quickly what they are. Verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness. Or verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin. Verse 9, if we confess our sins. And verse 10, if we say we have not sinned. And for each of those, he's going to give two consequences. So verse 6, the first one. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. When the Bible talks about walking, it's talking about our habitual living. Okay, maybe some of you as a new Christian, a person who's been a Christian for a while, came up to you and said, hey, how's your walk? And you're like, what? It's good. What did they mean? They meant, how is your relationship with God? How are you living on a day-to-day basis? Are you, are you going to Jesus? Are you loving Him? Are you honoring Him? Or are you walking in darkness? Walking in darkness according to understanding of light, would mean not walking in truth. Not walking according to the truth. Or not walking in purity. Not walking in holiness. Not walking the way God would want you to walk. Somebody may ask you, what are you repenting from lately? How are you applying the gospel to your life? Those are good indicators of whether or not you're walking in darkness. Some people you just get a stare from when you ask that question. So what are you repenting from lately? Uh, How are you applying the gospel? Uh, Well, oftentimes when you ask people those kinds of questions in the church, you get offense. What are you repenting from? None of your business. 
That's one answer. Or the other answer is stuff. Just vague. No, what are you repenting from? Just stuff. Well, can, you, can you elaborate? Bad stuff. <laughs> as far as we're going in this conversation. Some of you, when you ask yourself that, you have a really hard time answering it. Could you be walking in darkness? Do answers to those kinds of questions come to mind? What am I repenting from? How am I walking toward Jesus and to Jesus? If I'm walking in darkness, I'm not repenting of anything. If I'm walking in the darkness, I'm not applying the gospel. Well, this is what John says. Some of you, he says, are walking in the darkness, but you say that you have fellowship with God. So your life and what you say does not match up. If you say you have fellowship with Him while walking in the darkness, and that's what a lot of Christians do. So they know the truth, right? You, if you're in that position, you know the truth. You know that you're walking in darkness. You know that your thoughts, you know that your mouth, you know that your actions, you know that your deeds are not moving toward God. They're in rebellion against God. You know you're not sorry for it. You know you're hiding it. You know you're not repentant of it. You're not putting your faith in Jesus. You know that, but you lie about it and you pretend that you have fellowship with God. And so when people ask you, hey, how are you doing? How's your, how's your relationship with God? How's your walk? Your, your answers are, everything's great. Everything's great. I am, I am totally tuned in. I am walking in the light, brother. But you know, as some of them knew, that that's a lie. And that's what he says. When you do that and you're walking in the darkness and you say you have fellowship with God, here's one of the things that's happening. You're lying. If you do that, here's one thing that happens. You lie. Because it's impossible to walk in the darkness and have fellowship with God. But in order to have fellowship with other Christians, and in order to have a good reputation among Christians, you lie and say everything between you and God is good. But we know, and God knows, that if there is unconfessed sin in your life, which He's going to get to, there's no fellowship between you and God. Give me a break. I mean, you may have checked off your 10-minute quiet time where you read and managed not to meditate on anything, and you confess silly, ridiculous sins that you always easily confess, but you really don't have any kind of communion with God. There are myriads of people that you should go to and apologize to and ask their forgiveness. You don't do that. There's no sweetness in your time with God. You don't enjoy your time with God. You feel justified because you have time with God. And that's why you do it. Or you do it so that you can tell all your Christian friends, yeah, I've had 936 quiet times in a row. Me and God are tight. When the truth is, if you're doing that and you're walking in the darkness, you're lying because sin breaks fellowship. It breaks fellowship. So John says, there are some here, little children, there are some of you who say you have fellowship with God and yet you're walking in the darkness and you are lying. You enjoy the benefits of church fellowship and so you lie and say you're in fellowship with God. Many of us have done that. Some of us are doing it right now. 
He says, you lie and we do not practice the truth. I mean, you may know the truth, but don't actually put it into practice. Isaiah 59.2 says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. There is no fellowship with God if you are walking in darkness. There is a ceiling on your prayers. God doesn't hear you. That should terrify us. If we're going to walk in darkness, just pretend everything's okay. When we know things are not okay, don't bother praying. Don't even bother until you're going to repent and turn to Jesus. Because there is a ceiling on your prayers. God has His, if you will, His fingers in His ears when you pray. If you're not confessing, repenting, and turning to Him. Something similar is said in 2 Corinthians 6.14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Why? What's the problem? Why can't I try to have deep fellowship, deep intimate relationship with people who don't know Jesus? For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? When you are in darkness, you have no fellowship with God because God is light. So he goes on. His next, number two, if-then statement. But, so now he's going to encourage them. This is the way to go. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So what did he just do? Don't do this. Don't walk in the darkness and then claim to have fellowship with God and lie and not practice the truth. Do this. But walk in the light. If you walk in the light, you will have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Now it's interesting because in the previous verse, He said that our sin and walking in darkness inhibits fellowship with God. So then he says, but walk in the light. And you would think that John is going to say, so that you may have fellowship with God. Because the darkness made you not have fellowship with God, and now the light should make you have fellowship with God. But what does he say? He says, walk in the light that you may have fellowship with one another. Remember, what is he writing about? In, what is his hope? His hope, according to verse 3 and 4, is that you would have fellowship with me and with us. That we would have fellowship with one another. And so he's going to proclaim Jesus. So he's saying, if you want to have fellowship with one another, you need to walk in the light. Why? Because if we're going to have fellowship with one another, first, you need to have fellowship with God. But he also knows, I believe, why are people lying about this? Why are people in the church not walking in the light, not obeying God, not honoring God, and yet they're telling everybody that they have fellowship with God? Christians do that so that they can benefit from the fellowship of the church. I mean, church fellowship is sweet. Real church fellowship is sweet. I mean, we, Veritas Church... 
I think we've got 35, 40 members. And, and the love goes beyond that. But we love each other. We are here for each other. When someone's hurting among us, we really hurt with them. When one of us is excited and joyful, we really are joyful. When something happens that is devastating in person A's life, they're not alone. They have Jesus, but they're also not alone here at Veritas Church because they have brothers and sisters here who love them, who care about them, who aren't going anywhere, and who will bear that burden with them and count it a joy to do that. So fellowship and community is sweet. A lot of people just come to church because they want the fellowship with other people. They could give a rip about fellowship with God. But they want to be in a community. They want to be accepted. So what do they do? They lie about having fellowship with God. So John knows what they're after. He says, if you want to have fellowship with one another, walk in the light. Obey Jesus. Love Jesus. Walk according to the truth. Be pure and holy in your life if you want to have fellowship with one another. But we, want, you know, we don't want to walk in the light often, and this could be you. We want to appear to walk in the light. We want to appear to walk. So the first time we come in, it's, hey, brother. I'm slow to call you brother. We start with buddy. Maybe we move up to brother. But I don't know if you're a brother or not. Well, you say you're a brother. But I don't know. I don't know. We need some time to go by. Sometimes people come to Veritas and they're here for one Sunday and they're like, I want to be a member. Like, no. Let's wait a bit. For a couple reasons. One is you need to get to know us. Because sometimes the first date goes really sweet. But then the second date is a bomb. And you realize you never want to see that person again. And you may come a second Sunday and realize you never want to see our church again. So you need to take some time, get to know us, find out all our weirdness, and decide whether you want to be in fellowship with us or not. But the other reason is we need to see if you're walking in the light. I mean, as the church, we are to be a testimony of the glory of God. And we are to obey Him and to walk in holiness. So just because you come in and you've got a I'm your brother t-shirt... That doesn't mean anything. So we've got to wait and see if you're walking in the light. A lot of times Christians will do this. They'll, they'll do all this stuff on the outside. right? They'll have the Christian ease. They'll know all the right ways to talk. They'll have t-shirts. They'll have bumper stickers. They'll have wallpaper. They'll have movies. They'll have all this stuff on the outside. It says, I'm a Christian. I'm one of you. I'm your brother. I'm your sister. But oftentimes they're just looking for something social. And they just benefit from this. And the truth is they have no fellowship with God. They're not even Christians. Bumper sticker doesn't make you a Christian. It just makes your car look bad. That could be a bumper sticker. So John, to his readers, says, you want fellowship with one another? You want community? Don't lie about having fellowship with God when you're walking in the darkness. Walk in the light. If you do that, 
we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The blood, his violent death on the cross. He's going to say almost that same thing in verse 9, and so we'll, we'll look more into the cleansing in verse 9. The third, the third, if you do this, then this, and this. Verse 8, back to the negative. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So here John is writing, because there are sinners looking for a way to get to God apart from Jesus. I don't need Jesus. I don't need his sacrifice. I don't need his death. I don't need his cross. And the first way that some will do that is they will think, like verse 6, that, that my sin, it doesn't break my fellowship with God. I can walk in darkness and I can have fellowship with God. They lie to themselves. But the second thing that we are prone to do is to say we have no sin. I have fellowship with God. I'm okay with God. This is real popular in our culture. Me and God are fine. God loves me. God wants me to be happy. I'm going to heaven, and so is everybody else. What is, what is being said underneath that? Sin is no big deal. God is love. I know that truth. Right, that's the one that's promoted. But the Bible talks about God being other things too. Like God is holy. The book should be called Holy Wins. Not Love Wins. Because holiness is what is talked about more than any. God's holiness is what wins out above all else. And everything that is God is underneath His holiness. And flows from and is subordinate to His holiness. And so when we, when we talk like that, Okay, and think that my sin doesn't matter. And I, I have no sin. I don't really offend God. God is okay with the things I do. We're not taking sin as seriously as we should. And so John is writing saying, some of you are saying that. Some of you are saying you have no sin. So the first claim that they made left room for the acknowledgement of sin, but they said it doesn't separate me from God. But it denied its effect in relationship with God. But here... Another tactic, sin is just totally denied. Some will just say, I am not a sinner. Or, a more subtle form of that in the church is, well, I mean, I sin, but it's not that bad. Or we just dumb it down, or we downplay it. I sin, but, you know, it's under control. I am not out of control like that guy. Thank God that I am not a sinner like this one over here. We begin to downplay it. When we walk in the light, we don't pretend that we have no sin. We're honest about our sin. We're honest about our sin. We admit our sin. John says this, if you, 
If you say you have no sin, you are deceiving yourself. Because you're not lying to others. This isn't that first case where you're a deliberate liar. Because you're lying to yourself. You've actually convinced yourself of something that is not true. Some of you have a really difficult time naming your sin. You really struggle with it. You're always a victim. It is always, no matter what you've done, it is always somebody else's fault. You're, you're always just the, the product of your surroundings and your environment. And when you say you have no sin, there is, there is no... Because again, there are things that we're slippery. And we know not to say certain things as Christians. So none of us are going to say, yeah, I'm one of those guys. I have no sin. I say that all the time. You'd get outed pretty quick. Right, if you're in a decent church and you say you have no sin, they're going to have a problem with that. But we do it more subtly. It's more in our heart. We really believe that I am not as sinful as I actually am. We've convinced ourselves of that. I'm really not that bad. I'm really not. There is no wickedness in me. Really, I'm really actually doing pretty well. I'm on the way to being perfect. And something comes, or conviction comes, or someone confronts us, and we just, we crumble, we can't take criticism, we make excuses, we start pointing the finger, we start passing the blame, we do all of these things, and what we're really saying in those moments is, I have no sin. I'm a victim here. You're seeing things all wrong. And what John is saying is, when you do that, if you're doing that, you're deceiving yourself. That is, that is not, and what does he say? The truth is not in you. That's the second thing he says. You deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. It's not in your head, it's not in your heart. There is no personal accountability or responsibility. And many of us struggle with just being honest and owning up to our sin. But he gives an alternative. The next, if then, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So John is saying, rather than deny it, confess it. Saying, here's my instruction for you, sinners. Saying, first of all, those of you who think you're not, you are. Those of you who think it's under control, it's not. Those of you who think that these things don't get in the way of your fellowship with God, you're lying. You have no idea what fellowship with God is, perhaps. Says, here's, here's the alternative. If you do this, and then here's what's going to happen. Confess your sin. The confession of sin actually, it's not talked a lot about in the New Testament. There's four places where it shows up. Four places. There's a couple times where we read about people coming and confessing their sin to John the Baptist, who came before Jesus and is telling everybody to get ready and saying, hey, get out your dirty laundry, let's get open, let's get real, because the Savior is here. And so people are coming and they're 
They're confessing their sin. In James chapter 5, we're encouraged, verse 16, I think, to confess our sin to one another. And then in Acts chapter 19, a really strange deal in Ephesus that leads to a bunch of witches, basically, confessing their sin. But here's what's interesting. Every time the confession of sin shows up in your New Testament, it is not this secret, private thing. It's public. It's public. It's open. It's not just, and and, and not to say that there isn't private confession between you and God, and not to say that every sin needs to be confessed openly. I don't want anybody standing up, brother, I'm going to sin to confess. We're not like that. We're not going to do that right now in the middle of the sermon. But it is clear that sin is not just supposed to be, this is this thing where I confess it between me and God, and it's, just, it's a private deal. If you read through your New Testament, it knows no such thing. It is something that is done publicly. It is something that is done between Christians. It is something that we are open about. The way that we have fellowship with God and the way that we have fellowship with one another in spite of our sin is that we are not denying it, but we are confessing our sin and running to Jesus. And that we're doing that openly with one another. Not just general confession either. Because we're all good at that. Not just general confession. I too am a sinner. Wow, that must have really taken a lot out of you, brother. But we might talk about sin that way. Just on a real surface level. Yeah, I struggle too. What does that mean? Oh, I've sinned. I'm not perfect. There's no less sin in me than the next guy. What is all? It's all just a way of just generally confessing enough to keep people off your back. And some of you think about it, you know people who sound really humble and sound real confessional and who who are constantly talking about what a sinner they are, but actually... They never talk about anything particular. Just think about it. Some of those people that you think are actually just really open about their sin, it's just a tactic. It's just a way to keep you away. Yeah, I struggle with this, I struggle with this, and just give real vague, general references so that you don't go any deeper with them. And you have no idea what their particular sins are. You have no idea what their vices are. You have no idea the depth of their struggle. How many know the depth of your struggle? Do your close friends know that? Does your spouse know that? Or do you keep that from others? The confession that John is talking about is not just a vertical confession. If we confess our sins, and this is in the context of and for fellowship with one another, why he's writing the book. He says, if you do that, if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to do two things. He is faithful and just to forgive your sins. And he is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sin, God is faithful to forgive. What forgive means in your Bible is that 
It's like having a debt remitted. There's a debt you owe and the debt is canceled. The word literally means, the Greek word, let go. It means let go. And God lets this go. And he forgives you. He does not hold this against you. And so your legal standing with God as forgiven is you're justified. Your legal standing before God is you are justified. Your name is cleared, blameless, innocent before God. Because he has forgiven you. According to this verse, no confession, no forgiveness. Another strong statement John makes. This is a conditional statement. If, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. What has to happen first? You must confess your sin. Confess literally means to agree. To agree with God. He says you're a sinner. You say, yeah, you're right. I am a sinner. If you don't do that, there is no forgiveness for you. Don't think that you can live your life and not confess and be open about your sin and have fellowship with God, let alone have fellowship with other Christians. That's a conditional statement. Now, you can have, even with other people, you can forgive people who don't confess their sin to you in this sense. You can, you can by the grace of God, not stay resentful and bitter and angry towards those who have sinned against you, but not come and confess it. Right? Otherwise, we would all be a mess. But because God has forgiven us and shown us mercy, we can show mercy, we can let things go. But your relationship with that person is impossible to be reconciled unless they come and ask forgiveness. Amen. Unless they confess their sin. You can be letting go and not resentful, not bitter because of the grace of God, but this relationship is not going to be restored and reconciled until you confess and there is an asking for forgiveness. This is what's happening in Matthew 18, and this is what's happening in, in Luke chapter 13. And so we're, the brother is confessing, and he is repenting, and we're forgiving him. The disciples say, how many times do we do that, Jesus? It's getting old. He keeps confessing and repenting the same thing. And Jesus says, 70 times 7. In other words, over and over again. He keeps confessing and repenting. You keep forgiving. But if you don't, likewise, be open and confess your sin, do not think you have a reconciled relationship with God. This is not to say that your confession of sin is some kind of a work that you do, and when you do that, it flips the switch and God does His thing. What it means is that confession of sin is a hallmark of a regenerate believer. So a Christian confesses. So if you're not confessing, you are not a Christian. Not, if you're not confessing, start confessing so that God will forgive you because it's this trigger you pull. And he's just waiting for you to do this thing and then he'll do his thing. No, what he's saying is if there is no confession... You are walking in darkness and you are lying about fellowship with God. For the most affectionate letter in the New Testament, John is not messing around. I mean, you hear this, this was one, two punch. My little children. In verse 10, next verse, he's going to say, you're calling God a liar. Strong words about a serious issue. So God is faithful and just to forgive you. God is also faithful and just if you confess your sin. 
if you walk in the light with your sin, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm not going to presume to get that. I tried more than anything else in this preparation this week for this sermon to get my mind around so that I could try to express God cleansing us from our sin. And I just don't know if I have the words. To do it justice. God does not just... I mean, when you sin, and when I sin, it leaves a mark. It leaves a mark. It stains you. Some of you... You can recall things. You remember things that you've done, things that you've said, things that you've thought. And it's just just filthy. It has left a mark. If you're walking in the light, you know this. It has left a stain. If we confess our sin, if we walk in the light, if we repent and turn to Jesus, God doesn't just say, okay, whatever you've done, I forgive you, I'm going to pick you up and take you from death to life, no longer condemned, you're justified. He does that, but He doesn't just do that. He also washes us. He cleanses us. Jesus presents us as His pure and spotless bride. I don't know about you. I am not pure and spotless. And yet Jesus cleanses me. He doesn't just forgive your sin. He removes the stain of your sin. When someone gets baptized, which we're going to do on September 24th, when someone gets baptized physically, we call it an outward sign of an inward grace. It's a symbol of and demonstrating something that has happened spiritually. Do you know and understand the reason baptism is in water? We bring the person out of the water is because through Jesus we are cleaned. We are washed. We are washed clean from our sin. Psalm 51, 1 and 2. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Jesus cleanses us. If Jesus forgives us and if Jesus cleanses us, then what keeps us from confessing our sin? Not believing that. So believe that. 
Why don't I confess my sin? Why am I not honest about my sin? Why am I not real about my sin? Why is it so hard for me to be open with this person about what I'm struggling with? Why can't I ask this person for my forgiveness? I know I sinned against them. Why do I put up this face? Why do I put up this facade? Why do I get so easily embarrassed? Why am I so easily disappointed at criticism? Why can't I handle these things? Why is my reputation before others so important to me? You may not believe that if you confess your sin, God is faithful. It means He's promised to do it. He will do it. And He's just, which means He punished Jesus instead of you. He is faithful. He will forgive you. And He will clean you up. He will cleanse you from your unrighteousness. If you believe that, you confess sin. If you do not believe that, you do not confess sin. I believe as a church, as a church, and, and don't take this to mean you if you know you're struggling with this, but as a church, I am so pleased with the confession that happens here. I mean, I totally know this is one jacked up church. I mean, I know about so many of your sins and struggles and issues, and many of you know about mine. I, I do them up here. But we, we know these things. I mean, this church is about, 100 and, about 150 people. I've pastored at churches where there was upwards of 800 people. And I know about more sin here than I did there. And that doesn't mean, like, man, we must be really messed up. That doesn't mean that like, we're the sin concentrate in Roseville. <laughs> what it means, I pray, is that you are learning the gospel and you know that Jesus loves you. You are far more loved and accepted. There's more, much more grace and mercy than you ever thought there was in Jesus. You know you're forgiven. You know you're cleansed. So you don't have to walk in the darkness anymore. You can confess your sin. And so you do. And you come to me, and you confess your sin, and we talk through it, and we counsel through it, and we have sweet fellowship through that. Because we turn together to Jesus, where there is forgiveness, and where there's cleansing. Now he ends with a negative. And then next week, he brings two barrels of Jesus. He's just getting you set up here for chapter 2. But this is his last, if, this, then, this, and this. Verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, that sounds familiar. I think he's repeating verse 8. Wording it a bit differently. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. It's like John says, how can I make this point stronger? How can I help you to take this more seriously? If you say you have no sin, if you're not open about your sin, if you're not confessing your sin, if you're not walking in the light, if you're walking in the darkness, that's what he's saying here. If you're not living as if God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If that's you, he said before you're deceiving yourself. Now he says this, you make Him a liar. The Him is God. You say you have no sin. You say you're not really that bad. You say you're not really that needy. You say you really have it together. When you do that, you are pointing your finger at God and saying, liar. 
to God. Why? Because God, over and over again, in His Word, has told you how sinful you are. There is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. Ecclesiastes 7.20 There is not a righteous man on earth. There is no one who seeks after God. Romans 3 No, not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every inclination of our heart is only evil all the time. Apart from the grace of God. So when we play this game, when we walk in darkness, here's what it boils down to. It boils down to calling God a liar. To disagreeing with God. I'm not in sin equals God is a liar. And His Word is not in us. It's pretty clear John is writing to some Christians who are notional, nominal at best, who are not truly walking in the light, who do not truly know Jesus. Is it possible that there are people among us, even today, in this room, who think they bear the name of Christ, who do not actually bear the name of Christ? It is not only possible, friends, it is probable. It is most likely true. What can we take from what John says in his word? Walk in the light. Confess your sin. Walk in the light. Confess your sin. And don't forget what John is after. John is after fellowship and joy. Sin hinders fellowship. Sin hinders joy. Sin keeps you from God. Sin keeps us from one another. How is that relationship restored? With God, with one another. You must stop walking in darkness and saying you have no sin. And you must walk in the light and confess your sin. You must stop blaming. You must stop pointing fingers. You must stop lying about an intimacy with God that you do not have. And confess your sin. Is the only time you confess your sin when other people call you out? Does it always take somebody else to point out your sin? Perhaps you're not spending enough time. Perhaps you're not going deeply enough in your prayer life, in your meditation with God, in your communion with God, in your devotional life with God, whatever you want to call that. Perhaps you think that just being a Christian is just being busy and going to Christian stuff and saying Christian things and reading Christian books. You can go to all the Christian places, read all the Christian books, and download all the Christian sermons and not be a Christian. Is there time in your life? Is there time in your life to be contemplative? Is there time in your life to consider your standing before God? Is there time in your life to savor Jesus? Is there time in your life to think about His goodness? Is there time in your life for Him to point out and reveal and convict you in regards to guilt of your sin? Or do you choke all that out? 
I think the encouragement for us as a church, that we would have fellowship with one another, rooted in our fellowship with God, that we would have joy rooted in God, is we would commit, commit now, commit today, commit this week, to be people of confession. I'm not hiding this. I'm not concealing this. I'm not pretending this doesn't exist. I'm not arguing about it anymore. There's something here. Confess. Friends, you will not have fellowship without that. You will not have joy without that. You will not have heaven without that. You will not have Jesus without that. I'm going to pray and we'll share communion together. We'll have some leaders up here who want to serve you. So when you're ready, come up and we'll give you bread and juice and we ask you to hold on to that. We'll take it together as a church family. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for this day that You have made. We thank You for this Word that You have given us. We thank You for the Spirit that has taken up residence in us. We thank You for the presence of Jesus that is always with us. God, we desire not to be as Christians by name. We desire to be Christians by heart, to to be people who put off sin and, and put on Christ, to be people who turn from our evil and wicked ways and turn to You for forgiveness and for cleansing. So Lord, please, please come and do a work in our hearts, do a work in our minds. Redeem us, forgive us, deliver us from this body. Deliver us from our flesh. Deliver us from sin. God, if we have people... You know, God, I think I know, not if there are people here this afternoon who do not know You, whether they know they don't know You or they think they have known You, God, would You open their eyes that they may see the gap that is between them and You. May they see right now as their greatest need to be reconciled to You. May they see and understand right now that the only way of reconciliation with their God is through Jesus. That they would see and know and believe that Jesus lived a life they could not live in their place. That Jesus died a death in their place, taking the wrath of you that is due them. That they may believe in you and trust in you and turn to Jesus, have their sin forgiven, be cleansed from their sin, have the stains removed, to be called out of darkness into your marvelous light, to live in fellowship with you and with your people now and forever. That is our prayer and our hope in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah.